It is good to be with you again after last week. Uh, someone asked me if I would give just a brief update on uh, our ministry status, uh, and I would love to do that because I know so many of you have been kind to me, my wife, and my children when we come back, and your prayers and encouragement and support is uh, greatly appreciated as we often pray for you while you are here. Uh, I'm currently in between pastorates. I was pastoring at Belmar Baptist Church, and in December of 2019, Belmar Baptist Church merged with Farmdale Baptist Church, where our congregations joined together, and I served as an elder there at Farmdale, uh, which was fun because we merged, and then within four months, we were all trying to figure out how to work through COVID protocols together uh, as two nearly merged churches. By the grace of God, it went very well, and I'm grateful for that. And uh, I recently resigned my position there. Uh, they knew I wouldn't be there for very long because it was a bivocational pastorate and it couldn't afford to sustain my family long term. And I recently accepted a call to pastor at Riley Bible Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. And so uh, our family will be driving back to Indiana this week and moving into a home. And in the months of July and August and probably part of September, I'll be finishing up a writing project, my dissertation and start pastoring at the church in September. And so we would appreciate your prayers as we begin this new journey, this new phase of ministry in Terre Haute, Indiana. That is all I, I have to say about myself at this time. Uh, I would like you to turn in your copy of God's Word to hear what God says to you from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Our text for this morning will be 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, through chapter 4, verse 5. And hear the living word of the living God. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let us pray. Father, as we open up this text this morning, we pray that the unfolding of your word would give light as you promise it would and your spirit would give us eyes to behold your glorious Son, our Lord and Savior, the eternal God, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. First Timothy chapter 3, Paul puts forth the mystery of godliness in verses 14 through the end of the chapter, and then talks about how some will depart from this mystery of godliness, this faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. And this is why the Apostle Paul put Timothy where he was in Ephesus. I'm not going to work through the beginning of 1 Timothy, but just to set the context, Paul told Timothy that he was to remain at Ephesus so that Timothy would literally stand there and tell people not to teach certain doctrines. That is, that the, that the Apostle Paul would tell Timothy, Timothy, you are to go where I tell you to go, and you are to remain there, and with your eyes, you are to look at men in their eyes and speak with your mouth to their ears and tell them, you are not allowed to teach different doctrine than that which has been delivered to the church of Jesus Christ. And that's because false teachings, heresies, Bad ideas just don't appear. I'm not going to be preaching here this morning, and all of a sudden, right over here, is going to appear some false teaching. That's not how it works. 
false teachings, false ideas always come from the created order. Satan himself being the first, he is the father of lies. Demons, deceitful spirits carry on in the footsteps of Satan as they promote false teaching that is received by men and propagated by men to people. So Paul tells Timothy, hey, I'm putting you in Ephesus so you would look at people and tell them under the authority of God, you shut your mouth and do not speak things which do not accord with sound doctrine. Instead, Timothy is to teach the stewardship of God that is from faith. He is to promote the teachings of God that are the doctrines of the faith and that are to be received by faith. And in doing that, all apostolic doctrine ends, it finds its result, and brings us to love for God and love for man. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy says that the aim of our charge is love. False teachers end in speculation ungodly speculation, and endless genealogies which are of no edification. But you, man of God, you stand there, you tell them no, and you teach that which accords with sound doctrine. And that, I think, helps put, frame us to come to this text here as Paul has addressed the purposes for which Timothy is there. He's talked about prayer in the church. He's talked about the offices in the church of elder and deacon. And now we have here, 1 Timothy chapter 3, the mystery of godliness that Timothy is supposed to put forth and the false teachers that Timothy is supposed to refute. And here we have a master class in theology. You've heard of master classes you can take. Someone who's an expert in their field will teach you how to do a specific thing. Paul is going to give us a master class in theology. You say, well, Drew, could you give me a quick definition of what theology is? In case other people in the room don't understand, they may want to hear that. Let me give you one. Theology is the study of God and all things in relation to God. And Paul is going to show us how that works here in this text. So let's look at this text. We're going to exposit the whole text, pull a doctrine from the text, and apply that doctrine. So verse 14, I hope to come to you. So this is Paul. Paul's in prison expressing his desire to come to Timothy, but he is writing these things in case he cannot make it to Timothy, in case they do not see one another again. And as he writes these things, what we're going to see, I forgot to explain this up front, forgive me, we're going to see the nature of the church, just what is the church? So the nature of the church, the confession of the church, and apostasy from the church. So the nature of the church. Paul says, I want to write to you, because in case I delay, you need to know something. You need to know how one ought to behave or how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. The church, the gathering of the people of Jesus Christ here at Christ Community Church gather on this day, the Lord's day, as the household of God. This is God's house. This is not your house. This is not the elder's house. This is not your house and the elder's house together. This is the house of God because he purchased it with the blood of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh. This is his house. It belongs to him. He bought it, he made it, and graciously brought us into it. A great and kind, hospitable God he is. But, but because it's his house, there's, there's rules. You may be one of those people who has rules in your house, Maybe if I come into your house, if you were to graciously invite me over, you would say, Drew, would you please take off your shoes? If I were to look at you and say, I'm good, thank you. I don't take off my shoes in my house. You'd be like, <clears throat> this is my house. When you're at your house, Drew, you can leave your shoes on, but when you're at my house, you take your shoes off. This is God's house. This is not your house. You don't dictate what happens here. God dictates what happens here. The elders don't dictate what happens here. The elders receive what God has told them to do and administer 
what happens here. They are not inventors of the church. They are receivers of the church, receivers of what God has said. And they say, this is how God has said his house ought to be ordered. And because he's God and because it's his house, it will be ordered accordingly. It is the house of the living God. That is the God who has life in himself. You are not the living person. You are a person who has life. You are a person who has received life. God is life and has received life from no one. God is from himself. He is not from another. You are and only can be from another because you are a creature, not the creator. God is the living God, the God in whom is all the fullness of life. And we praise the Lord for that. This is who he is in and of himself, apart from anything, the living God. This church, church of the living God, is a pillar and buttress or support of truth. It it is like a pillar. As Paul's writing this, what would happen is is there would be a pillar out in a main road where people could see it, and an edict of a a leader or a ruler or a governor, he would write something down, and he would take that, and he would nail that to this pillar so that as people walked by, they could read the edict of the ruler of that area. And you wouldn't walk by the pillar and say, man, that pillar is so amazing for coming up with that truth all by itself. Look at that pillar. Isn't that just magnificent? No, you'd say, this pillar exists so that someone could say, this is what the truth is, and we are to read that thing, and the pillar is there to uphold that thing. It doesn't invent the truth. It just says, here I am. I exist to hold up the truth. And that's what the church is. The church does not determine the truth. The church does not, the church does not define the truth. The church receives the truth and says, this is what the living God has said. So the church is a household. It's the household of God. It's the household of the living God. And it's a pillar in support of truth. This is the purpose for which it exists. Do not come here for anything else other than that. Do not come here because you feel like you want some type of community. Yeah, community is a byproduct of the truth, but it's not the thing that you pursue. Do not come here because you think you have some type of longing of happiness that needs to be fulfilled in your life. You, you may. Then in Jesus Christ, you will find full satisfaction, I promise. But if you come here for those things and make those things the reason why you come, you will end up walking away unsatisfied. The church exists to be a pillar in support of truth. Come here to hear what God has said. We move from the nature of the church to the confession of the church. The Apostle Paul says, great indeed, magnificent, glorious, wonderful. And on top of all those things, I can't help but think in my mind that the Apostle Paul is using this word to say great indeed, to take just a jab at the pagan worship in Ephesus. Why do I think that? Well, I, think, I think that because Paul uses this two times. He uses it here in 1 Timothy to Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus, and he uses it in Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus. So what's that have to do with anything? In Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and he's cre- creating a ruckus through the preaching of the gospel. And what does the crowd begin to chant? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And you're saying, Drew, I I don't know who Artemis of the Ephesians is. And my point to you is this, exactly. Artemis of the Ephesians is not the living God. Allah is not the living God. Dagon The Philistine God is not the living God. And because God is the living God, he will do to all false gods what he has done to Dagon, which is decapitate him and incapacitate him. Because these are idols that are not by nature gods and they don't have life in and of themselves. He is the victor. So we stand here today, 2,000 years after the time of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, walked the earth, and we confess the same thing that the church of Jesus Christ has been confessing since that time. Great indeed is this mystery of godliness. You say, Drew, it's a mystery. What What does that mean? Well, it means what happens right there in verse 16. 
That's, that's the mystery. That doesn't sound very mysterious. And yeah, exactly. Maybe sometimes because we come with a bad idea of what a mystery is. Some hole that we can't figure out or some, something that ends in contradiction, but we just want to stop just shy of contradiction. No, no this, is, this is plain teaching. You, you may be here today, you may not be a believer in Jesus Christ, but, but you look at this and, and you can read it. He was manifested in the flesh. And you can just keep going and you can say, I may not agree with this, but it is clear. And I promise you, we don't have a secret code that we have that we just haven't let you in on. And once you come on the end, you'll have the secret code and you'll be able to unlock what this mystery really teaches. No, it's right there. We're not Mormons. We have nothing to hide. We don't have these secret temple practices. Here's the mystery. It's right here. You say, why is it called a mystery? Matthew Poole in his commentary on this text says a mystery is something that is sacred and secret. And I think that's, I think that's a good way to help describe what a mystery is here. It's something that you would not have arrived at by your human reason. It is something that you would not have arrived at by logic. It is something that you receive with reason. It is something that you receive with logic, but it is a sacred spiritual truth that is a secret in the mind of God that is known only by divine revelation. And that's what we mean by mystery, something sacred, something secret. We're not trying to hide anything. If we were, it just wouldn't be right here published for the whole world to see. We haven't said anything different for 2,000 years. It's a mystery of godliness. This speaks again to the, the, the fact that it comes from God as to its origin, but also as to its end, as it ends back in God. It's a mystery that is from God, that is revealed to us, that we may hear it, receive it, and ascend to God in our worship and in our lives. So, the nature of the church the confession of the church. Let's look at this confession. Very plain. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And if you are familiar with the storyline of Scripture, you can feel the rhythm of this text, and you think, I, I know this. I've, I've watched this play out in the Old Testament as it foreshadowed Christ. I watched as I read the Gospels and saw Christ came. I know the book of Acts when the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. And I know that there was the command to make disciples of all the nations. And I know that they would start in Jerusalem and go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you think, oh, I feel the rhythm of this confession, this nice, tight, concise, but packed mystery of the faith. It is so simple. It is so simple and yet so deep and rich. You could tell this to a child. You can condense this into one sentence. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's all this is saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You could just basically articulate it. God created all things. Adam sinned. In Adam, we all fell. We're guilty and corrupt in our head. Adam, we have no means of making ourselves right with God. There's no, we are not good enough to stand before the judge of all the earth who is perfectly righteous and holy. We have a severe problem. But wait, there's a mediator. This mediator is truly God. This mediator is truly man. And as one who is truly God and one who is truly man, he can unite God and man through his work, which he came to do. And he came to do it as a man. And as he did his work, he came and lived a life of absolute perfect righteousness, which is the standard required for your salvation that you cannot attain. He lived, he was crucified, dead, buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven. He was vindicated by the Holy Spirit through his ascension and he was seen by angels, which means that there is a whole realm of beings that are unseen that we know of because of divine revelation. You and the animals that we know that are in the air and under the sea are not all that there is. 
There's more to it. It. This is not just some naturalistic, materialistic world that we can see with our eyes. There is more to the created order than you can see, and, be, and that's because it's real. God has created these things called angels. These angels we sang about, angels do admire as they look on, and the phrase angels do admire is taken from 1 Peter chapter 1 as angels long to look at the, at the work of the coming Messiah that the Spirit of God was prophesying about through the pens of men. And this Jesus was proclaimed among the nations because he's not some tribal deity He's not some deity that was merely good for Jerusalem. He's not some deity that was, is merely good for America. He is the only savior of mankind. There is no other. Not only has he been proclaimed, but the message has been successful. He has been believed on in the world. Look around. The meeting that we have today on this day, the Lord's Day, is a testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ has been believed on in the world, and he will continue to be believed on in the world. And he was taken up into glory where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the quick and the dead. But we can go deeper than that. So let's go a little deeper. You may say, Drew, I don't know if I, I can go deeper. I don't know if I want to go deeper. It's okay. Hold on. This is like climbing Mount Everest here. Air's going to get a little thin. It's okay because the mountain's still up there even though the air is thin. We're not going to be able to ascend with our minds into the thoughts of God, but we ought to go as deep as we can possibly go. We see that he... That word he is so important. He was manifested in the flesh. That is, this one who is the eternal son of God, he is a he. He did not take on another he. That's the heresy of Nestorianism. He is the he. And this he was manifested in the flesh. He was not created as man. He is the uncreated one who created all things. So he was never adopted as the son of God. He is the eternal son of God. And he's the eternal son because he's the eternal son of the eternal father who together with the father spirates the Holy Spirit who is the third person of the Holy Trinity. And he was manifested in the flesh, which refutes the heresy of docetism. That is that Jesus Christ was not merely, or did not, he merely appeared to have flesh and merely appeared to be a man, but was not indeed truly a man. So we have certain things that we have to say about this he who was manifested in the flesh, but not created in the flesh, because he is both the eternal God and the one who became man. But these two are not contradictions, we cannot always explain the how of this mystery, but we can explain the that of this mystery. He is, he is the he who was manifested in the flesh, not the he who was God and mingled with the flesh to become some type of third thing. Truly God, truly man, vindicated by the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, the one who after Jesus Christ we read about last week was glorified, and upon being glorified, the Son sent the Spirit, because he is the Spirit of the Father and of the Son, and he was vindicated by the Spirit. That is, he was raised for our justification, which is tied to the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he was seen by angels, angels, the one who were there to proclaim the incarnation, the birth of Christ. They were there with him at his temptation, his passion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And he was proclaimed among the nations, because as we've already said, there's one Savior, but one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And he was believed on in the world because the work of the gospel is an effectual work. It is irresistible to those who have been chosen by the Father before time to be in Christ Jesus. And this message that is preached coincides with the fact that Jesus Christ was taken up in glory. And for Jesus to be taken up in glory means that we are justified upon his ascension. And so we read this message, and this message doesn't tell you to do anything Thing because there's not something that you can do to earn satisfaction before God. You receive the one who is taken up and ascended into heaven for your righteousness. We could go deeper and deeper and deeper. The point is merely to say this. There's nothing tricky about this mystery. 
It is both beautifully simple and extremely complex. And you may say, Drew, I don't understand all the complexities of this. That's fine. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Receive that message by faith. And then pray that the Lord, the God of the universe, would grow you into the deep and powerful and beautiful mystery that the church has confessed for 2,000 years. We move from the nature of the church to the confession of the church to apostasy from the church. Apostasy from the church. So we have the church that we've looked at. We have the confession of the church. But there's a very real reality that there will be people who seem to be a part of the church but leave the church. So Paul is not necessarily talking about the enemy from without but the enemy that is within that will seek to rip and divide and split the church. And the interesting thing is, is that these people who apostatize, notice that Paul, and we'll get to this, but I just want to set the framework of it real quick for you. Paul doesn't say that these people explicitly deny the things that are in the confession here. He doesn't say here. There's other places. The apostle John in 1 John talks about those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh, right? And that would be refuted by what we have here in verse 16. But that's not what Paul's point is here. His issue is marriage and food, which is really interesting when you think about it because you don't see marriage or food listed in the mystery. And we'll get to, to why that is, but you're going to see that this is a, a complex, heretical move away from the mystery of the faith without explicitly denying it, by, but by affirming certain truths necessarily means one has departed from the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. So let's look at this apostasy from the church. First, Apostasy from the church is a sure thing. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, the one who vindicated Jesus Christ, the third person of the Trinity, who knows the mind of God because he is God, expressly says. Now, when the one who is God and has the mind of God declares what the mind of God knows, we accept this as true because it just is true. He expressly says, what does he say? That in later times, some will depart from the faith. So don't be caught off guard. Don't be shocked. You see a big name, you see a big figure, someone that you know, someone in your family, someone you're married to, your child, your father, your mother, leave the faith. Don't let this catch you unawares. It doesn't mean don't mourn. It doesn't mean have no feeling about it. But what it means is, we know that people will depart from this mystery. We don't, we don't depart from the mystery. Please, I implore you, do not depart from this mystery of godliness. We hold on to it. Because those who depart from it, specifically those who teach it, get their doctrine from deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. This goes back to what we were saying earlier that all false teaching, it's not going to arise over here. It may arise from, from my mouth, but it's not going to arise in some space over here in the sky. Bad theology is underworld theology that comes from demons through the mouths of those who are insincere. They are hypocrites. They do not feel the things they ought to feel because their consciences are seared. And what's the content that these hypocritical liars who have seared consciences put out? First, they forbid marriage. Second, they require abstinence from foods. And you think, well, that's, that's really interesting, Drew, because those things aren't quite alike. And if you recognize that, you've recognized a very good thing. You're right, marriage and food laws are not the same thing. Marriage was given to all of creation from the beginning of creation and will be with creation until we reach the new creation in which there will neither be marriage nor giving in marriage. Food laws, though, are different. Those are specifically tied to the Mosaic Covenant. So you have marriage, something that is given to creation, begins with creation, and runs through until the new creation. And then you have food laws, which are given to the people of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. So one endures through all of creation. The other was for a specific time period. One is immutable in this age. The other changed in, in, in the time of humanity, in this, in this created realm. And so you have something that is ongoing and something that is brief and momentary. False teachers can't put a whole Bible together. 
They are incapable of being able to take these things that are enduring and supposed to last through all of humanity and these things that are tied to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. Their hermeneutic, their ability to interpret scripture will fall apart as they're supposed to put together all of scripture and it becomes evident through the way they treat marriage and food. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, these are things that God has created. And what are we to do with them? We're to receive them with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, meaning those who believe and know the truth know that those who forbid marriage and require abstinence of foods are incorrect. And so we receive these things from God and we do so with thanksgiving because all things that God has made is good because God is good and everything that he makes is good and he has declared all things good both in Genesis chapter one and in the book of Acts where Jesus tells Peter that all food has been declared clean. Therefore, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. That's the text. Let's pull a doctrine out of the text. Here's our doctrine. It's about theology, right? This is a master class in theology, as I said. Here's our doctrine. Sound doctrine begins with God in himself, then appropriately considers his works of creation and redemption and ends in godliness. So you want to learn how to think biblically, follow this pattern of reasoning that is outlined for us in the, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. Sound doctrine begins with God in himself. That is who he is in and of himself apart from the created order. Then appropriately considers his works of creation and redemption and ends in godliness. Let's break this down. We get this idea that theology begins with God in himself from verse 15 where Paul calls God the living God. Paul has an obsession in 1 Timothy with the fact that the God is the living God. So you have, you have it here in chapter three, verse 15. Look with me at chapter four, verse 10. For to this end we all toil and strive because we have set our hope on who? The living God. Look at 1 Timothy chapter one. To the king of the ages, immortal. That is incorruptible life in and of himself. Look at 1 Timothy chapter six. God, who alone, that is, he being the only one who has what? Immortality. God has a kind of life that no other creature has and is the basis for all life. We see this in verse 13 of chapter 6, where Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things. Here we see, again, back in our text, chapter 4. They, they require abstinence from food that God created. You see, throughout the epistle of 1 Timothy, Paul is very concerned that you understand that this God to whom the church belongs is a God who has life in a way that nothing else has life. And because he has life in such a way that nothing else has life, he is a giver of life to those who do not have life in and of themselves, which is everything but God. So we begin with God, who he is in and of himself. And we are so grateful that we do because think about it, this is the church of the living God and that gives us great confidence because Jesus Christ promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That is, death will not win because the church belongs to the one who has life in himself. How insecure would we be if this was the church of a God who borrowed life from another God? would we have the confidence that the gates of death would not prevail against the church of the one who borrows life from another? Life is greater than death and the one who has life in himself is the one who owns death and the son came and took on flesh and has been given the keys to death and Hades. You need to flee to him and come to him. He is your only hope of salvation. If you do not come to the living God and you cannot confess the faith that is found here, that is the faith of the church of the living God, you will fall into the hands 
of the living God. And as you know from the book of Hebrews, which you have been studying, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the one who has life in and of himself. It begins with God and then considers appropriately the fact that this God who has life in himself is the one who gives life and is the creator of all things. There is nothing that exists that he has not created. And within this created realm, it has fallen because of Adam, as we have discussed. And so, we then move from God who is in himself to God who has given life to all things to God who then saves those who have rebelled against his holy character. And what makes all of this so awesome is that you can take your hand, and if you're willing, go ahead and do that. Take your hand and cover the mystery of godliness. Because none of that had to happen. God didn't need the mystery of godliness. We needed the mystery of godliness. God doesn't need you. He is not served by your hands. He made you without you, apart from you, and didn't even need to make you. If he was hungry, he wouldn't even tell you. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What can you give to God that he has not first given to you? And this God, who is fullness of life in himself, looks at the thing which he has given life to and offers redemption in his son, Jesus Christ, to those who have rebelled against him. And so all of this, as we look at this God to creation, to redemption, it all culminates in godliness, being conformed into the image of God, which is really interesting because when you look at this text, look at verse 16 and ask yourself what you're supposed to do here. What's the ethic? Where's the command to do something? You're not going to find it. It's just because this teaching right here is a teaching that produces godliness in people. Why? Because it helps you to know the God who has life in himself, who created all things and redeemed those things which rebelled against him. And the knowledge of that stirs the affections of believers to love God and informs them in how they ought to worship God. If you are worshiping the Spirit who is manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Father and seen by the Son, you're doing it wrong. Follow the order here. Follow the progression. Know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and have your affections stirred by the fact that the living God who gives life to all things redeemed rebellious humanity. Let's move from that doctrine that we have explained and not as sufficiently as I would have liked because of the time to some uses of the doctrine. The first act application, the first use we can have with this doctrine is number one, study the mysteries of godliness. Study the mysteries of godliness. You say, Drew, I don't know where to start. I'll tell you where to start. Start right here. Memorize verse 16. It's not very hard. It's got a nice flow to it. It's got a nice rhythm to it. Memorize it. Put it, in, put it in your memory bank. Make sure it's always there. Say it to yourself in the morning when you get up. Say it to yourself in the evening when you lie down and ask that the Lord would bless you with the unfolding of Scripture, that it would bring light to your mind, that you would have a greater understanding of this mystery of godliness. You say, Drew, to do what with it? Well, I, my wife's eyes are green. I don't know what to do with that. Like, do I take them out and play with them? Like, no, that wouldn't be good. I can't do that. I, I, I gaze into my wife's face, and I say, you are beautiful in and of yourself. We, we look at this and we say, God, you are all glorious in and of yourself. You are marvelous. You are magnificent. You are the fullness of life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I adore you. Study these mysteries, and in studying these mysteries, I promise you that as you receive these mysteries by faith, God will bless you with godliness and conform you into his image as you receive these things that he has for you and it stirs you up to love and know him better. This is eternal life, that they know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Study 
the mysteries of godliness, for they are truth and worthy to be known just because they are truth. The author of Proverbs 23, 23 says, buy truth and do not sell it. Don't sell it. Don't sell it for fame. Don't sell it for fortune. Don't sell it for family. Don't sell it for friends. Sell it for nothing. Buy truth. Never sell. Hold on to these mysteries. And as you hold on to these mysteries, beware of apostasy. Beware of apostasy. Pray that the Lord God would keep you in the faith. Pray that the Lord God would hold you fast. That Pray that the Father, as he gives you to the Son, that the Son would preserve you until your dying day. And as you do that, beware of the apostasy that's coming around you. Beware of apostasy that's coming around you. Let's just look at two brief examples. Both should hit very close to home. They require abstinence of food. We talked about how false teachers are unable to deal with things of creation and food laws. They can't put together those things that endure through time and those things for a specific amount of time. And you see this in movements that seek to connect or put together or say that Christianity and homosexuality are compatible. And what will you see them do? You'll see them go back to what? The food laws of the Old Testament. And say, these have passed. So too has the institution of marriage in the way it's described in the Old Testament. Therefore, now we can engage in homosexual marriage. Unable to put together creation and covenant. Those things which endure through time and those things which are a specific point in time. But I think there's more that we can say. I think we can take direct application from this text and apply it to the Roman Catholic Church. Think of the Roman Catholic Church who explicitly forbids marriage of its priests. It says there is a whole class of people whom the Roman Catholic Church has bound their conscience to never be married. Together with that, there is this time called Lent in which the Roman Catholic Church requires abstinence from certain foods. These things have an appearance of godliness but are an ungodly binding of consciences upon people. And why do they do this? They do this as a form of penance. You must participate in Lent if you are in a specific age range and you do not have health issues. You are required to abstain from certain types of food, which is why you have things like Fish Friday. But ask yourself, is there anything in Scripture that would give you any indication that something like Fish Friday would conform you into the image of godliness? No. What about, what about setting up a whole class of people who cannot marry? Has that ended in godliness? Look at the sexual scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, and the answer is clearly no. Now, that doesn't mean that every sexual scandal arises because marriage has been forbidden. But what it does mean is when we forbid marriage, we expect ungodliness to follow because that's just how false doctrine works. True doctrine ends in godliness. False doctrine does not so we can see that there is a direct application to the, whole, to the Roman Catholic Church that forbids marriage and requires abstinence from certain foods that God has created. This does not mean that celibacy is immoral. This does not mean that abstaining from marriage is immoral. I can't say that. And it, why? Because Scripture doesn't allow me to say that. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in Matthew chapter 19, talks about how some have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about celibacy as a gift that is given. What about abstaining from food? There's, well, there's nothing wrong with fasting. The issue is when consciences of individuals have been bound to remove from the good created order, and the church has said this as a means of godliness, 
And the reason it says this as a means of godliness is because the Roman Catholic Church is a false gospel that doesn't understand the fact that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. Christ is taken up into glory for our justification, but because, according to Roman Catholicism, the grace that Jesus Christ purchases is distributed out into the church so that you could work out your own justification with the grace that has been given to you by Christ, they do not understand that Christ was taken up in glory, and he is our justification. Our perfect, our perfect righteousness that we have, we receive by faith because of what he did, not because of what we have done, but they distort the doctrine of justification by faith alone because they do not think that the church is a pillar in support of truth. They think that the church is the determiner of truth through the tradition and the magisterium, but that's a long story for another day. Before we point the finger outward, and by, by all means, this can be a pointing of the finger inward, do not leave the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and go to Rome because you will fall into the hands of the living God and it will be a terrifying thing for you. If you're unsure about the differences between Roman Catholicism and Christianity, come talk to us and we will clarify that for you. But lest it just become pointing outward and, and concerned about our own apostasy, let's move to the third application which is properly receive and evaluate marriage and food. Properly receive and evaluate marriage and food. You have the Roman Catholic Church who says priests have to be celibate. I think we have to be self-critical as evangelicals and admit most evangelical churches would never hire a pastor who was single. That doesn't accord with godliness either because there are some who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The apostle Paul was single. And so we, we, we don't want to err in that direction. We also don't want to err with food. You say, well, yeah, we don't, we, don't, we don't practice Lent. Yes. When was the last time you fasted because you realized you needed to depend on God more than you do? You say, well, Drew, I did. I took a fast from social media. That's not a fast. That, when you fast from self, social media, that's a nice way of saying I have absolutely no self-control over my life. But if I say I have no self-control, then that means I'm a sinner. And I really wouldn't say that. I want to make this sound holier than it sounds. I'm going to fast from something not food and call it a fast to make myself sound more spiritual. Scripture knows of no such thing. Here's the difference between a social media fast and what God calls a fast. God calls a fast removing food from yourself. Why? Because food unlike social media, is something you actually need for life. And so what I'm going to do is withdraw from the created order upon which I depend for a day, for two days, so that I can enter into a time of intense prayer and meditation and Bible reading to increase my dependence not upon those things which are created, but upon the one who created all things. So before we point the other finger, we must also ask, how is our dependence upon God? When was the last time you fasted? Some of you are going to say, and that's okay. I can't fast. I can't afford to not eat. I am frail. I am weak. I am sick. I'm undergoing treatment. Fasting is a means to help us depend upon God. If you cannot fast because of the trials of your life, use the trials of your life as a means to help you depend upon God. For those of you who can fast, you should fast. So that when you enter into those times when you cannot fast, you have trained yourself in dependence not upon the creation, but upon the creator. And we receive these foods, again, under properly receiving marriage and food, receive these things with gratitude, not with gluttony. Receive these things with thanksgiving. How do you do that? One simple, very simple way, just pray before you eat. Pray before you eat. Follow the pattern of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who prayed and blessed the food before he ate and say, Lord, you are the creator of all things. You are the one who has life in himself. I don't have life in myself. I depend upon creation. You do not depend upon creation. You have given me this meal that I may eat to be sustained. You are a good God who has created good things. Thank you for this food. Properly receive and evaluate marriage and food. Finally, gratefully receive the mysteries of the faith. Gratefully receive the mysteries of the faith. 
Some of us are in here saying, I have done things in my marriage that I ought not to have done that really cannot be undone by this time. Yep. The blood of Jesus Christ atones for that. That's why we needed he who was manifested in the flesh. That's why we need his perfect righteousness because your righteousness will never suffice. You're saying, I, I don't receive food properly. I don't receive it with thanksgiving. I receive it with gluttony. I need forgiveness. Yes, Jesus Christ, the one who's vindicated by the Spirit and taken up to glory, is your justification. Drew, I don't know the mysteries of godliness like I should. The mysteries of godliness bore me. I need my affection stirred to love God in these mysteries more than I have before. Yes, you do. I do. We do. Receive these mysteries, knowing that it is a mystery that has been revealed in the created order because we are fallen. We needed Jesus Christ to enter into a state of humiliation and become like us, be made under the law, undergo the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross and being buried and rising again, conquering death. We need this one who has conquered Satan, death in the world to give us life. And we come to him as the only fountain knowing that he gives us life because he has life in and of himself. Let us pray. I, God, confess that I, I, I have not wrapped my own mind around the depths of what has been said and the, all the more that has been unsaid today. May we just sit in awe of your beauty and majesty, knowing that we, may not, we do not fully comprehend it and we cannot because we are creatures. We ought not to attain to the heights of God. If we attain to the heights of God, we too would become God. And so, Father, we sit here like those who stare up to the heavens and lift our eyes and marvel at who you are, looking at creation, not to end in creation, but looking at to creation, knowing the one who has given life to all things. And in the life you have given us, we have not lived as we ought to have lived. We have violated your law and are worthy of nothing other than death. And so as we consider the fact that your existence is all that is necessary and essential and our existence is not, and then we realize that in our existence, which is neither necessary nor essential, we have sinned against you. We marvel at the grace that is offered to sinners. Father, this mystery that has been proclaimed today for those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ, we pray that the Spirit of God would work faith in them to receive these truths. And for those of us who do know Christ as our Lord and Savior, grow us in this faith and strengthen our faith. Stir us up to a love of the triune God. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Amen.